Man, God is good, amen? I'm just, the Lord is in the room and it's so exciting to me. I'm going to preach a message to you this morning, hopefully, and hopefully I can do it quickly. I always say that, but whatever. Uh, and here's, so it's actually perfect because the title of the message is this, deal with it. Deal with it, right? How many of you remember when you turned 18 uh, or 19, you know, some people are late bloomers. So how many of you remember the first time in your life where you had to start adulting? Anybody remember that? I, I, was, I was feeling that this morning, thinking about our college students coming back and, and learning how to adult, learning that Band-Aids cost $10 a box. I don't know why Band-Aids cost $10 a box, but they do. You know, learning how uh, that you're going to have to figure out how to go to class, guys. I mean, how many of you are freshmen? Do we have freshmen here? All right. I love freshmen. We're glad you guys are here. You're going to have to figure out how to go to class, hold down a job, unless, you, unless your parents are wealthy. You're going to have to figure out how to have a social life, because I know you want a social life. You're going to figure out how, how to figure out how to manage friendships, and some of your friends are going to go cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And it's just going to happen. And you're going to have to make professors happy. You're going to have to write papers and read like 38 books that you will never care about again. Right? That's the freshman year. But you also have to watch out for the freshman 15. That's a real thing. That's a real thing. Here's the good news. Ice cream is also very expensive these days. So maybe that will help you a little bit. Uh, unless it's free in the cafeteria. I don't know. You're going to have to figure out how to budget your life. You're going to have to pay some bills. Maybe, maybe now you, you, know, you, you can't be on your parents' insurance, maybe, so now you got to get health insurance. you got to pay your own cell phone bill. you actually got to buy gas for your car. These are real things that you have to figure out. Uh, you, have to, you have to do laundry. Please do your laundry. Your roommates will thank you. Please do your laundry. Uh, you have to exercise, and that's the best way to stave off the freshman 15 so they don't turn into the sophomore 20, okay? So learn how to exercise, and lastly, uh, make sure in your adulting that you call mom. Just some, just some free advice as you have come here, and we're so glad that you're here, but we will remind, I'll try to, you tell your mom, I will try to remind you regularly to call home. Uh, if you haven't. So call your mom. It's really important. And it's still important even when you're old to call your mother. Hello, mom. I know you're watching. I love you. Praise the Lord. <laughs> so here's the thing with adulting. I have three words for you. Deal with it. And I say that in the most loving way that I can, but how many of you know as you grow up and you figure life out, you just have to deal with it, right? Like you just have to go figure it out. You have to go and do the hard stuff. And even when you're afraid, you go do the hard things and you figure out life. You deal with what comes your way. Uh, it's time for you to deal with it, young people. It's time to grow up. It's time to move forward with your life. It's time to kick in and see what you're made of. These are the years we're going to find out what you're made of. And I'm so excited for you because it's going to be awesome. All right? I mean that with all my heart. Praise the Lord. And some of you I've never even met, but there you go. But you're going to have to deal with it. So I, I come to James 4, and I really think, you know, James, in James chapter 4, the second part, heard a great message from Pastor Jim last week on humility. If you didn't hear that, you might want to go back and listen to it. Just a great word uh, that he shared from the first few verses. Uh, but today, uh, James kind of takes a turn, and for the first three chapters, he's like, hey, if you have faith, prove it. If you love God, 
prove it. If you, if you want to be part of the kingdom, whatever, prove it, right? He's, he's, how many of you know he said prove it over and over again? Don't tell me you have faith. Show me that you have faith. Prove it. Well, he takes a turn here in chapter 4, and he's moving from prove it now in this passage to deal with it. And we're going to look in verse 7, deal with it. And the first thing he wants us to deal with as our, in our walks with God is we've got to learn how to deal with our own heart. Deal with your own heart. Deal with your own heart. He says in verse 7, so humble yourselves before God. Well, that's a, that's a big sentence. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your, for your loyalty is divided between God and this world. That's quite an indictment. And I say that we have to deal with our heart. He doesn't mention our heart here, but really doesn't sin, doesn't humility, doesn't really everything that we have to think about and work on and deal with in our faith begin and end and intermediary in our heart. Doesn't it all start in our heart? Isn't it all about what's in our heart? James says that we start in our heart with humility, and you can Read or listen to Pastor Jim's message last week, but a couple of thoughts I had. Humility acknowledges God's power is greater than yours. Humility says, I am not strong enough, smart enough, big enough, understanding enough. I'm, I don't have an infinite mind. I'm limited on everything that I have, but God is not limited. And so why would I be stupid? Everybody ever had the spirit of stupid? Can I say stupid? That's, that's okay, right? If you've ever had the spirit of stupid, here's the spirit of stupid. Well, God, I can do it without you. Well, God, I got this. I got this. I don't need help from God. But humility acknowledges that God's power is greater than ours. It also puts our futile efforts into perspective to God's, here's a, here's a great word for you uh, college students, profundity. It's a real word. God's power is profound. And when we humble ourselves, we realize our efforts are futile, but his, his efforts and his power, what God, in other words, what God can do far outweighs what we can do. And last thing I thought about humility is humility is the secret weapon to defeating the powers of darkness. What does he say? Humble yourself before God. And then the very next phrase, resist the devil. And what I think he's saying is this. If you choose not to live in humility before God... Your resisting the devil will be only in your own strength and you won't get very far. That's what he's saying. He's saying, humble yourself before God so that you can resist the devil so he will flee from you. So if we lack humility, it keeps us in the dark. And I think when we lack humility, it allows us to coddle our sin, to sort of hold it close and enjoy our sin and hide our sin and hold on to our secret sins. Lack of humility keeps us in slavery to the darkness because when we don't have humility, we don't believe we need God's help. Oh, I can do that. I can take care of that. That's just a small thing in my life. I don't need God's help for that. I got this. That's a lack of humility. It opens our heart to darkness. And our lack of humility, which is pride, gives the devil a foothold. It allows him a place to stick his foot in the door of our heart. If we, if we attempt to resist the devil without first humbling ourselves before God, resistance is futile. 
Come on, Star Trek. Thank you. (laughs) What I want you to see in this first part about dealing with our heart is there's a sequence to it. You humble yourself so that you're able to resist the devil in humility because only Christ in you, the hope of glory, can give us victory so that we can come close to God. The Bible's clear in the Old Testament and the New. He is close to the humble. Those that humble themselves shall be exalted. Those that are full of pride shall be put low. We humble ourselves, we resist the devil so we can come close to God and then we can repent, wash your hands, you sinners, be right before God and be undivided. Be undivided in our love for God and our love for the world. I believe that the Lord wants to put to death in our lives the affections we have for the things of this world. He wants to put them to death. It doesn't mean that we become you know, so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. You ever heard that before? It doesn't mean that we just spend all of our time with our head in the spirituality side and we have no practical purpose. Like I want my children to be useful humans. Can you guys be useful humans, right? But beyond that, I don't want you to love the world. I want you to love what God loves. I want you to hate what God hates. I want you to resist the devil so he will flee from you, and we do that. That allows us the opportunity to live undivided, that we're not consumed with the things of this world. We're consumed with the things of the kingdom that are eternal. First, we've got to deal with our heart. Then he says this in verse 9. We've got to not only deal with our heart, we've got to deal with our own sin. He says, let there be tears for what you have done. Doesn't that sound like a parent? You better cry. (laughs) Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. I like, like in some ways, I really don't like that verse. And and in in a lot of ways, it sort of is the opposite of what we preach in the American church, isn't it? Be happy. Be joyful. And and I would say unequivocally, God wants us to live with joy. I don't think that James is saying don't live with joy and be grouchy and grumpy and whiny all the time. How many of you know those people are awful? He's not saying that. What is he saying then? It's kind of a weird verse to put in there. God does want us to be joyful. Joy is our strength. Joy is living our lives with God in control, free from sin and death. But, what, but remember, what we're talking about in, in this moment is living with humility so we can come close to God. So, so, so James is sort of taking uh, uh, sort, of a, sort of a page out of the book of the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 9, is heading to Damascus. At the time, his name was Saul, and he's a dirtbag, and he's murdering people, and he's putting people in prison. And if you read the original Greek, which, how many of you know the original Greek? Anybody in the room? You'd be, I don't either. Don't worry about it. Don't, it's, don't worry. Uh, you don't, if you know it, good, God bless you. In the original Greek, though, it, it's really saying Paul's breathing murderous threats. That's what the NIV says. What it really means is that he's really getting, kind of getting off on it. Does that make sense to you? Like he's getting high, if you will, on what he's doing to the church of Jesus. Like in his mind, he's doing righteous things for God, and he's destroying this cult that is destroying Judaism in his mind. And he's excited about what he's doing. But in Acts chapter 9, he meets a resurrected Jesus. And Jesus, you know the story, knocks him off his donkey, makes him blind. The voice comes from heaven, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he goes to the, you know, Ananias, and this whole, this whole thing happens. And, and, and Paul ends up getting saved 
gives his heart to the Lord and filled with the Holy Spirit, and immediately, the Bible says, began to preach the gospel. Then he, then he realized, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. So he went away for a few years and whatever. And that's not important. Here's the point. Four times in Scripture, besides Acts, three times besides Acts chapter 9, when it actually happened, Paul tells us the story of who he used to be. Not just his salvation, but he says things like this. Here, here's one passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, my Lord, who's given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a pure persecutor and a violent man. Like he's acknowledging the dirt bag that he used to be. He says, but the grace of God was poured out for me in verse 15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance Christ Jesus came into, into the world to save sinners. There's no period after sinners. He says, of whom? I'm the worst. Nobody's worse than me. I'm the greatest sinner who's ever lived. I've done more bad things, wicked things, evil things, horrible things than anybody else. Why does Paul tell us that? Why is that important? I believe that, that he wanted us because he had a tenderness about the pit from which they were dug. A, 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 a moment where we remember what we were before we met Jesus. Do you remember what you were? Do you remember the person you were? Do you remember the thought process? Do you remember the addictions? Do you remember the sin that held on in your life? And here's the question. We can remember, but does it still move you? Does what Jesus did in your life still move you? That's what James is saying. The great way to stay humble before the Lord is to remember the pit from which you were dug, to have tenderness about what he pulled you out of and how he redeemed your life. And remember what Jesus has done. If you'll remember that, if you have tenderness about that, about the grace of God, you'll be humble. Why, did, why does God want us to do it? First, first Timothy, Paul continues in verse 16, but for that very reason, because I was the worst of sinners, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. See, he understood that it would take him remembering what it was so that God took this vile, wicked man and turned him into probably the greatest Christian we've ever seen. Probably the greatest man of God who's ever walked the earth was the Apostle Paul. And God took what was the lowest of the low and made them great. Does that make sense to you? But Paul never thought much of himself, did he? I remember early in Paul's life, he would say things like this, well... I'm the least of the apostles, you know, like, I'm pretty good, but I'm the least of the apostles. You know, Peter's better than me, and James is better, you know, but, I, but I'm up there. Then later on in his life, he says, no, I, I, that's not really true. I, I'm really the least of the saints. Like, of all God's people, I'm the lowest of God's people, but I'm definitely God's people. Then he puts himself below a sinner. He says, no, I, I'm actually the least of sinners. Do you see the humility progression in Paul's life as he did the ministry of the kingdom. He came to that conclusion, and I believe he had a tenderness. Let's never forget what God has redeemed us from and what he's done in our life, what he's demonstrated in our life. Let us never get over it. That's dealing with our sin. 
Then he says this in verse 10, we've got to not only deal with our heart and deal with our sin, but we've got to deal with our own future. We've got to deal with our own future. Humble yourselves before the Lord, he says. There's a, there it is again. And he will lift you up in honor. Man, he's reemphasizing the whole humble thing, but for a different purpose. The first purpose to humble yourself was so that you could come to God, so that you could resist the devil, so you could live you know, ho holy and righteous. Here he's saying it's not about that. It's so that he will lift you up in honor. If you want God, how many of you would love it if God lifted you up? Wouldn't that be great? If God lifts you up, yeah, that's awesome. God lifts you up. It's much better when he does it than when you do it. And James is saying if you want the Lord to lift you up in honor, then you've got to first humble yourself before the Lord. So I want to give you a thought, okay? Here's a thought. You know and I know that the grace of God extended to us is what we would call in theological circles unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. You can't do anything. God redeems us. He forgives us. It's unmerited favor. How many of you agree with that? Nothing you can do. It's not, not of works. There's no work you can do to earn salvation. It's just the free grace of God, and it's available to everyone, right? Unmerited favor. You've done nothing. Jesus did everything. You with me? But I think there's a different kind of favor, and it's called merited favor. That as you honor and serve and obey the Lord, that you can cross this bridge, if you will, from unmerited favor to a place of merited favor with God where God begins to pour out blessing on your life. Not, and we think of that because we're American primarily financially, and I don't mean it that way. I just mean God makes a way for us. He does great and powerful things in people's lives when they've humbled themselves and crossed that bridge from unmerited favor, which is for everybody, to a place of merited favor. Now, some of you are like, because you're Pentecostal, so you're like, I don't know what I think about that. I don't know if I like that. I don't deserve anything from God. And I get it. I get it. You don't. God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe me anything. He's given us salvation freely. But I think you can cross a bridge, and I think that's what James is saying. He's saying if you want to cross the bridge, if you will, to a merited favor where God lifts you up, why does God lift you up? Because you humble yourself before him. Because you've chosen to live your life in such a way that is beneath the Lord, that is humbling, realizing, recognizing it's only God and nothing else. No one else can do what God has done in my life, and I can't make things happen for me, so I'm going to humble myself and trust the Lord. And, and when you get to a place like that where you live, you walk into a, a new place of merited favor where God goes, okay, there's, there's somebody that I can lift up in honor. And I'll tell you, I can only speak to that from my own life. I'm convinced that God has blessed and honored Amy and I in our lives, not because we've lived perfectly, because we certainly haven't lived perfectly and certainly not without sin, and some of those sins we still grieve. But because in our hearts we've always tried to honor God, it's always been our motive, it's always been our desire to stay humble before the Lord and to honor him, to obey him when he asks us for things. When he asked us to adopt four children from Poland, we said yes. Had no idea what that would mean, where that would lead, what it would cost. When he asked us to leave uh, our, the comfort of a great youth pastor job and go pastor a church, we said yes, because it's easy to be a youth pastor. <laughs> I 
I love you, Mark. (laughs) But we said yes. We said yes when he asked us to abandon and leave our community that we'd built and walk into a brand new role in our district and serve our churches across Indiana. We said yes when he asked us to join this church and join our lives with your lives and walk together. And I don't see those things as sacrifices. I see those things as incredible blessing and opportunity from the Lord only because early in our lives, going back to our early days of marriage, we made a commitment that we'd say yes to God every chance we could. We would never say no if it was within our power to say yes. And I just believe, it's not, it's not like the two Jeff and Amy Horn thing here. I'm not saying that at all. And I'm not saying, trying to, to, to build myself up. I'm just simply saying, yeah, I firmly believe that if you live like that, if you live in a place where you try to say yes to God, even when it's inconvenient, when it doesn't make sense, when there's nothing, that, that, there's nothing in the world or in the natural that says this is a good idea, But you say yes to God anyway. You cross a bridge from merited favor to a place where God can provide like he never has before. Where God can do work. Now here's the thing. How many of you can testify that that is true, what I just said? You've seen it in your life. You've walked it in your life. Why am I talking about this? Because I want to implore our young people to live like that. Not when you're an adult. Now you're adulting, but you know what I mean. Not when you've earned your career and you're walking out there and then you say, okay, God, now I can say yes to you. I've done these things that I wanted to do and now I can say yes to you. Now I can try to do that. Well, when I get these things in place and when I work on this or after I get married and have my children, then I'll say yes or whatever. I want to say to you, don't wait to say yes to God until after you've done what you want to do. Say yes to God now in your life and just wait and see how he blows your socks off with his faithfulness. It's a place of merited favor. God puts favor on your life because you've followed and obeyed and loved him. Will I mess it up again? Absolutely. Will I disobey God at some point? Absolutely. But when I do, when Amy and I do, we will humbly repent and ask God to fix it and we'll strive to follow him. Now, if you're an older person and you're like, man, I just never really lived my life that way. I got great news for you. It's never too late. It's never too late. I don't care how old you are, how fixed your income is, how much time you don't have, or how disabled you might be. It is never too late to say yes to the will and the plan and the purposes of God. If you say yes, if you honor him, if you allow him to work in your life, whatever age you are, he will move you from unmerited favor to merited favor, and God will do great things in your life. You've got to deal with your future. And lastly, those three things really have to do with inward things, with dealing with our heart, dealing with our sin, and dealing with our future. But lastly, James gives, gives us some really good thoughts here about dealing with our attitude towards others who are on the journey. You know what happens? We, we get in this journey with God and we go forward and God works in our life and great things are happening and, you know, whatever. And we're just trying to honor and follow the Lord. And if we're not careful, we start to look back at people who are in a previous state of journey than we are. Does that make sense? They're not as far along the path as we are. They're still dealing with hangups, and they're still being like, I don't know why I can't quit doing X, Y, and Z. I I don't know why I'm struggling with that. And we have a tendency to look back on them 
with an older brother attitude. Like the prodigal son. Father, I've been here serving you. Why are you messing with that guy? What a terrible person. He can't even get his life straightened out. But here I am. You know, I've never left. I've always served you. And if our attitude shifts like that, can I just say this? You walk back across the bridge to unmerited favor. James says, don't speak evil against one another. If you criticize and judge each other, I want you to listen to this phrase. If you criticize and judge each other, you're actually judging God. What? Like, that's a pretty serious statement. You know, you know, what, you know why? Because we're saying to God, well, you, don't, you must not know how to transform people anymore. You must have forgot how to help somebody get over addiction. You must have forgot how to help somebody, you know, learn to do their devotions. You must have forgot how to help somebody stop having sex outside of marriage. You must have forgot. Look at that guy. James says, when we criticize that guy for the things that they're doing, we're not judging them, we're judging God. I don't know about you, but I don't really want to be in a position to be the judge of God. Like, that sounds like a bad idea. He says, your job is to obey the law. He's like, shut up and obey the law. Your job is to obey the law. Not to judge whether it applies to you or someone else. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. So what right do you have? So he's saying, bro, be humble. Deal with your sin. Be tender about the things God has done in your life. Walk across that bridge to merited favor with God and don't judge other people while they're trying to figure it out along the way. Don't worry about them. Pray for them. Love them. Be kind. Take up the attitude of Christ towards brothers and sisters who are still struggling with things of the world. Are you with me? Take up the attitude of Christ. What did Christ do for people who were dirty, rotten sinners? What did he do? Well, he was patient with them. He was kind to them even when they messed it up. Now, he did call Peter Satan once. But he was, was the Lord kind? I mean, isn't like the thing that the sinner said about him was he was a friend to them? So if we can be friends to sinners, but not careful about the things that we say and judge our fellow believers, something's wrong. Are you with me? I feel like you're kind of with me, but I want you to be with me. He was kind to them. He was concerned for them. He celebrated the small victories in their life, but always called them to higher things, right? He never let them stay where they were. He celebrated, man, thank God that you have faith. I've not seen greater faith than that, but there's more. He'd always say things like that to these people. And he loved them well. And can I just say loving, whether sinners or believers caught in wrong things or caught in, and by the way, a lot of folks who come to Christ today are coming with, with these cultural reinterpretations of scripture that really mess up the the theology, really mess up the way they see God and they see the kingdom and they see the things of God. So loving them does not mean that we embrace their messed upness. Does that make sense? It does mean we patiently work with them 
and walk with them and help them as much as, as much as we're able. And we love them. That's what I think Jesus would do. Why? Why is this a, de- a big deal? Well, because of a, of a $10 word called sanctification. Okay, It's a theological term. It basically means the process of becoming holy. So you, when you come to Christ, here's the theological moment. Okay, 20 seconds, because then you're going to fall asleep. Theological moment. When you come to Jesus, you are instantly sanctified, meaning you are made holy by his blood. He makes you holy. It is not you. It is all Jesus, but he makes you holy. But there's also this process of ongoing sanctification. It's why somebody can be saved for 20 years and still be a knothead. It shouldn't be like that. They should, like 20-year-old saints should be different than baby, baby Christians, right? They should be growing in that. That's the process of sanctification. It's learning how, little by little, to live our life for God and to God and, and, and for eternity. It's sanctification. It's that, the, you know, if you, and I'll just ask you this, if you are the same today as a follower of Jesus as you were six months ago, your growth is stunted. If you're the same today as you were the day you got saved and like, man, I gave my heart to Jesus and I didn't have to change anything. God didn't ask me for anything. I didn't have to change the way I think or whatever. You're probably not on the sanctification pathway. That doesn't make you bad or horrible or evil or wicked or whatever. It doesn't make you anything. It just means that it's time to activate that in your life and begin walking towards Christ. And guess what? Our job is to walk together. That's why we do connect groups. Because in that group, you might be like, hey, I'm going to sign up for this group, and it's going to be dads, and we're going to goof around and throw axes and whatever we're going to do. It's going to be a a great time. Well, guess what? You're also going to be around some other men of God who are going to try to sharpen you. So whether you study an actual Bible verse or not, there's this thing that happens when you spend time in, in the context of other believers. And any of our connect groups, that's what's going to happen. Some of them are going to be Bible studies, and you're going to grow, and it's going to be powerful, and you're going to have all these, revel- this is revelation. You're going to have these, re- I just made that up. You're going to have these revelations that happen in your life, but the most powerful thing that's going to happen is simply spending an hour and a half every week with some other believers who are on the journey with you trying to walk together and find Jesus. That's it. That's the most powerful thing about it because that's our job is to walk with one another. I hope, worship team, if you want to join me, I hope someone in your life acted that way towards you. I hope someone in your life was patient with you as you grew in the things of God. I hope someone in your life demonstrated to you what that looks like. If you're right now in this room on the beginning of that pathway or, or you feel like your growth is stunted and you feel like I just don't know how to go forward, I hope that the people here at CPC will have the attitudes like this towards you. That we'll be patient, man, as long as it takes for you to get where you need to be. We'll journey with you. We won't throw you out because you can't live up to the standards. We'll love you better than that. And I hope if you want to follow Christ, but stuff from your old life just keeps hanging on, stuff of sin and addiction and bondage, that brothers and sisters around us and around this place will be gentle and help you walk towards a deeper and more powerful relationship with God. I hope that happens here every week.
I believe it does. Got to deal with your heart. You got to deal with your sin. You've got to deal with your future. And you've got to deal with your attitude. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for inspiring this great passage of scripture that James wrote for us. I thank you, God, that no matter where we find ourselves on that pathway, Lord, that you have a better plan, that you have a great plan, that you have an amazing plan and opportunity for us to follow you. God, some of us do need to deal with our heart. We need to go back to the beginning and we need to examine what's in our heart and make sure that the things that are in there are not of compromise, that we're not loving, you know, that divided loyalty, that we're kind of loving the things in the world and kind of cozying up to the things of God, but God, that we are choosing to push aside the affections of this life and to embrace with all of our heart the things of God, the purposes of eternity. God, some are here and they need to really deal with their sin. God, some are here, they've been saved so long, they still remember you know, what it was like to not be a Christian, but Lord, they've just kind of gotten over it. It doesn't move them anymore. You know, they, 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 they take for granted the grace and the mercy that you've given to our life, Lord, but others here are very tender, Lord, about the things that they've been, been pulled out of. Lord, help us to examine that today, to deal with our heart, deal with our sin, God, there are others here today that has just sort of stood on the one side of the bridge of the unmerited favor of God, looking across the bridge at all the people, God, all the wonderful saints, all the great things you've done in other people's lives, that they, if they've responded to your call and they've said yes to you, they've obeyed you, they've left this world behind and they've gone to the things of the Lord, God, and you've poured out on them merited favor. And God, some of us, we stand on the other side of that bridge and we look longingly like we want to cross the bridge. So Lord, I pray today that there'd be a decision made in those hearts to say yes to you, to say yes to obedience, to say yes to humility, to say yes, God, to the opportunities that you'll put before them. Not when they're older, God, not when they figured life out a little bit, but right now, say yes to whatever you might say. Lastly, God, help all of us to deal with our attitudes. Let us not be people of judgment. Let us not be people who look at a brother or a sister and condemn them because they can't figure something out. They can't seem to overcome that sin or that issue or that thing in their life. Lord, help us to have patience and love and compassion and humility. And God, I pray for that person, Lord. If, that, if you're that person, who struggles, God, I pray there'd be somebody to lock arms with them and walk all the way through. There'd be people at this church, God, to lock arms with them and lead them towards the things of God. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Let me invite you to stand with me all over the room. And I just, this is what I think. I think of those four things, there's one thing or two things that, that the Holy Spirit is nudging your heart about. Can, can we just ask the Lord right now, can you respond to God? Is it your, your heart that God wants to work on? Is it your sin he wants to work on? Is it your attitude or is it, is it your future? Would you ask the Lord right now, Father, would you speak clearly to us? Come on, would you ask him, what is it in my heart, God? What is it in the sin, God, as I, as I celebrate what you've done? What is it, God, in my in my future, Lord, I want to live in merited favor from you. Not just unmerited, but merited favor. God, I want to have the right attitude towards brothers and sisters in the Lord. I want to walk favorably with them in Jesus' name.
God, I pray that you'd speak clearly to our heart right now what it is you want us to do, what it is you want us to say. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. 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 Bless you, Father. Bless you, Father. Whatever the Holy Spirit tells you to do, because I think there's a, there's a doing component to dealing with it. So whatever he speaks to your heart the next day, the next week, the next month, would you obey him? Some of you said, I want to cross the bridge to merited favor. Well, guess what? God's going to give you an opportunity to do that. He's going to say, hey, here's the thing. Here's an opportunity to say yes. Will you say yes? Some of you, your attitude's been off, and he's going to give you an opportunity to have the right attitude towards a brother or sister who's struggling. Some of you are going to be reminded of the greatness and the power of God who saved you and redeemed you. Some of you are going to have to deal with some things in your heart. When God brings those opportunities, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? Lord, I just thank you for these people. And I thank you for the courage that they will have to follow and honor you. I pray that in the coming weeks and even months, as these things come up, God, as we enact them, that your glory and your power would be shown perfect in us. Help us, Lord, with courage to do what you said. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Whatever he says to you to do, do it. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and give you peace. God bless you as you have this great week. You start school tomorrow and all the great things that are coming for us. We love you. God bless you. Have a great and awesome day and week. Amen.